You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrator. Now, Rob, I don't know about you, but I think my eyes are bleeding from watching a lot of basketball here over the, the first week of the season. It could be because of the smoke and the ash in the air down here in Southern California uh, because of the wildfires. And maybe if you look closely enough, there could be tears of joy from the first real proud moment that Michigan football has had in probably five years by just working Notre Dame football on Saturday. I don't know what it is, but I'm fixated on my eyes right now. I think it's mostly I've been staring at screens and watching games in person, and I'm getting a little bleary-eyed. Well, spoken like a man who's probably seen a little bit too much of the Warriors and Kings the last couple days. Yeah, uh, Northern California's having some tough times on the basketball court. There's uh, no question about it. Maybe we can dig into that uh, here a little bit more deeply. Look, you knew it was coming. If the Warriors struggled out of the gate and there was lots of red flags that they would during a preseason in which they were getting worked by absolutely everyone, you knew the comeuppance was coming. I mean, they broke a lot of hearts. They angered a lot of people. They talked a lot of trash. They did an awful lot of taunting here over the last five years. And so the critics, whether on social media or in the email inbox at openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com are going to have their day. And one of those critics, Rob, is named Waz, a longtime Open Floor Globe member. And he writes, um, Look, Steph is great. Draymond was a force of nature like I've rarely seen last year in the playoffs, but the love this team got the last five years was always overstated by an absurd collection of talent that raised everyone's status beyond their individual realities. It needs to be discussed what is on the line for these guys this year. I believe it's a correction to their individual historic status. So he's specifically talking about guys like Steph Curry, or Draymond Green, or Coach Steve Kerr, where they're getting hyped up, uh, you know, at the peak of uh, those teams' powers as you know all-time greats, uh, you know, at various points. And Waz is saying, does there need to be a correction? Is Curry really a top twenty-five all-time player? Uh, so, Rob, what says you? Are you ready to uh, uh, revise all of your takes on these guys from the past five years based on two games? Do you want to pump the brakes uh, and have a little bit uh, more time to see how things shake out? Or is there something to what Waz is saying, which is maybe these guys are getting exposed a little bit now that they don't have that full collection of talent? Well, I think I do think there's some exposure, but I mean, Waz says the idea that the Warriors were kind of overstated during this run. And I just wanted to confirm that we're talking about the same team that won a title, then won the most games in NBA history, then put on the floor maybe the best team that the NBA has ever seen. That's the team we're talking about, right? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not sure that you can actually overstate this team. And look, we should mention, I think Waz is from Minnesota. So, you know, he's got that Curry post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome, you know, from the David Conyers and 
Look, Waz, I mean, I hate to say it, but some of this, you know, it just kind of sounds to me a little bit like jealousy, like you're coveting your neighbor's wife a little bit. If you had had Steph Curry and a five-year run uh, like they had in the Bay Area uh, up in Minnesota, are we getting the same taste from you? Be honest. Look in the mirror. Well, I think the realistic part is that the Warriors can't play the way they want to. You know, they can't play quite so democratically. They can't use Steph off the ball in the way that they've tried to because they don't have the intelligence as play, you know, as playmakers. They don't have the Sean Livingstons and the Andre Guadalas anymore. Obviously, their, their defense has just been a disaster so far, so that's a huge part of it too. It's, it's tricky because, and, you know, Waz mentioned this in his email as well, the fact that Marquise Chris and Glenn Robinson are starting for the Warriors and, you know, podcast extraordinaire Nate Duncan has been hitting this point that, Golden State probably has the worst small forward and center rotations in the league. Like, we're not talking about, oh, these are no-name role players. We're talking about literally the worst rotations at those positions in the league. So when you have that, when you have Steph, who's not being used optimally for this particular setup, when you have Draymond, who's always been reliant on having bigs who can finish or other shooters on the floor who he can set up, and then D'Angelo, who's just trying to find his way in a brand-new system with brand-new teammates— I don't think it's entirely surprising that they sputtered out of the gate, although certainly the uh, the scope of it, the extent of it in these opening games has, has been pretty stark. Yeah, I mean, there's a few different things going on. First of all, I'm not here at all for the revisionism about what happened during the last five years, okay? Those teams were as good as we hyped them up, and those individual players had so many moments over the course of that run that were spectacular. They deserve all the praise. And if you got sick of it, because they kept waxing your team off the court. I get that. But that doesn't that doesn't mean you get to come around in 2020 and say, oh yeah, these guys were bums the whole time. To me, Golden State's early struggles uh, actually tell us more about the guys who aren't there than the guys who are there, right? Because if Kevin Durant's on the court, put aside everybody else they lost this summer, DeMarcus Cousins, uh, Looney's injured, Andre Iguodala, Sean Livingston. I mean, that's a lot of talent, right? But if you just have Kevin Durant on that court, the offense is going to look a lot better than it does. Steph's not going to be getting trapped like crazy. It's going to be functional. Uh, and then defensively, they're going to be a lot better than the absolute worst team in the league defensively if they've got t- Kevin Durant out there with his length and his versatility uh, and just, you know, his competitive drive and spirit. It's just different when you have, you know, superstar level guys um, to keep everybody else invested. So uh, that's number one. I think early 2020 MVP to me right now, it's either Kevin Durant or Dave Yeager. Okay. Because <laughs> look at the messes these two guys have left behind. Now, that's number one. I also think just defensively, um, you know, people who commented on the Warriors were often quick to give credit to guys like Clay Thompson, Andre Iguodala, uh, Draymond Green, and Kevin Durant defensively. Uh, another big aspect of their defense, though, was having that reliable, big, traditional five who could keep some of the wear and tear off of Draymond, who could allow Draymond to sort of freelance and cover all the ground and be as disruptive and take chances defensively. And right now, they have replaced those elite Hall of Fame perimeter defenders with complete nobodies. And then they don't have the traditional center to kind of flank Draymond and, and to put him in a situation where he can be at his best. So there's no question that he looks worse and uh, you know, when we're getting into this ranking idea of like, okay, uh, did Draymond maybe look a little bit better than he actually is in the Warriors situation than in an absolute vacuum? I think that's a fair argument. But this current situation to me is about as bad as Draymond could ever look. I mean, he's not playing with another plus defender at this point, is he? 
uh, in their starting lineup. Uh, he's not playing with experienced guys. I think if you dropped him on a random team, his impact is going to be bigger than it is right now on this Warriors group. And I know it's weird to say that. I know it's disorienting because it happened so quickly, but that's just sort of, you know, as Steve Kerr has called it, uh, the new reality. So I'm not going to be coming down too hard on Steph Curry or Draymond Green this season. The one guy I do think who needs to adjust basically everything is Steve Kerr. Now, Steve Kerr has made a career and a reputation off of, you know, preaching joy, the ball movement stuff that you were mentioning, the man movement stuff that you were mentioning, um, you know, a number of unorthodox, uh, you know, approaches to maximizing uh, great talents, like pulling the absolute best out of great players. This is a totally different coaching challenge. And it doesn't seem to me like they got any work done establishing the most important thing offensively, which is to find a balance between Russell and Curry. To me, they're at at ground zero. So that's a coaching problem right off the bat. And then second, you know, defensively, um, you know, I I don't know what the solution is given the parts that he has, uh, but, you know, they're embarrassing. You know, I think that's what Luke Walton called the Sacramento Kings. The the Warriors, to me, the first couple of games, from a defensive effort and execution standpoint, have been absolutely embarrassing. And so I don't know if that means you got to simplify things down. You got to, you know, I don't know what cards Kerr can go to. Uh, but to me, I think he's the one who is uh, at the most, uh, you know, most at the mercy of the the changing dynamics there in Golden State. Well, I think you you nailed it when you pointed out that the Warriors have been the worst defense in the league so far. But I think it's even more severe than that, where their defense is worse than the best offense in the league has been so far. So even if their offense was perfect, even if they were working on all cylinders and they were top of the league in that regard, they would still be losing games. And so that's kind of the problem. Their defense has to do more work. And then, as you mentioned, Kerr has to revise a lot of things in terms of the way that team works. And I think fundamentally, when you're looking at the Warriors, how they're going to be this season, how Steph's ultimately going to perform and D'Angelo Russell and all these guys, the question is, do you think the Warriors, as presently constructed, can be a good offensive team? Not even a great one, but you know, somewhere between 12 and 8. Can they get into that range of offense? Because if they can, then I think there's still kind of some potential to be a playoff team. But even getting to that point requires a lot more high pick and roll, a lot more of the ball in Steph's hands, running kind of traditional offense. The Warriors, I think, have to be a normal basketball team for maybe the first time in, in Curry's, certainly in Curry's stardom there. Yeah, and is this a case where Steve Kerr believes his own stuff too much, right? That happens. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we all of us who like mantras, you know, can get want to double and triple down when the mantras get tested, right? But this is a situation where you've got to show flexibility as a coach. Uh, you've got to throw out what worked three or four years ago and you know, start fresh, start clean, and, you know, potentially go a, a totally different direction based on the talent that he now has available. It's also something, by the way, that Greg Popovich did multiple times over the last 20 plus years in terms of style of play. What does he emphasize? What's his team's strength? Um, you know, he has, uh, you know, done that masterfully and it all, hasn't always led to title teams, but it's definitely always led to winning teams and kept them in the playoff mix. Uh, I'm not sure that at any point they had as dire of a roster situation as what Golden State's dealing with right now. You know, I think given their injuries especially like this is a rough rough group and you know unless they get guys back healthy quickly i'm not sure it's a playoff team uh but i do think they can be uh much better than they showed we should also point out they played two franchises that had just wanted to kick their teeth in right Mm -hmm. i mean 
the Clippers have been humiliated by the Warriors over the last five years throughout the Steve Kerr tenure. I mean, it's just been uh, embarrassing time after time after time, high profile games, uh, you know, getting run off the court. And in, in last year's playoffs, they got beat. Um, you know, Kevin Durant just absolutely diced them up. And then with the Thunder, not only do you have that organization still being angry from 2016 that Kevin Durant, uh, you know, left for Golden State and completely changed the direction of their organization, but you've got Chris Paul who got eliminated the last two years while a member of the Houston Rockets by Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors too. So this was like a perfectly calibrated, like get your kicks in uh, on the uh, you know the stumbling former champs revenge tour uh, by the NBA schedule makers here in the first week. And I suspect that once they face uh, you know either less motivated or less talented opponents, uh, Golden State will look uh, look better for sure. No, I'm in complete agreement, but I just want to say it's particularly delicious, the idea that you of all people are speaking to the danger of doubling down on your own mantras. I know. Uh, look, mental flexibility. It's it's a new movement. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wave. I'm going for it in 2020, Rob. Uh, okay. We'll see if I get there. Um, I'm not ready to do the backflips and the uh, grease pig nonsense that uh, you know certain people out there have perfected, but uh, I think this is a case where... Uh, this should have been a step back summer for that Warriors coaching staff. And I don't know if they did step back. And I don't know if their front office stepped back either because you look at their moves, they locked everybody up, locked Clay up, locked Draymond up, uh, brought back Looney. Um, you know, when I was sitting there at the end of the finals, the call on my wrote was Warriors dynasty over. And I got some pushback on that. And of course, players like Clay Thompson come out and say, oh, we're not done, we're not done. Barkley told him to his face this week, you know, Captain Takesman, straight to Clay Thompson's face, your dynasty is over. And I agree. You know, I think that trying to cling to that past, you know, trying to just, you know, wait on Clay Thompson coming back and, you know, somehow that's going to lead to a, a miracle playoff run. I think that's the wrong approach. I think all options need to be on the table here at this point for their brain trust, you know, and that could include potentially shifting what you're looking for in a uh, D'Angelo Russell trade because you know my my mentality coming into this season was okay if you can trade Russell for some vets who can fill out that wing uh you know rotation for the playoffs uh now you got a shot you know to make some noise I now wonder if the better play with Russell is to try to flip him for some future assets so you can really fill out and find some players who can support Steph here over the next three to five years because he's locked in on a big contract. Clay's locked in on a big contract. Depth is going to be an issue for this team going forward for you know basically the next, next half decade. Uh, the one mechanism you have, the one young star player that other teams would actually want would be Russell. Uh, that's what I maybe would be looking for you know, in a Russell trade package. Uh, and so that's the kind of flexibility that I'm talking about from their organization. The other one, and this is you know third rail sacrilegious, but you may want to get out in front on a Draymond trade too. Um, and you don't necessarily need to rush into that. But I do think that his trade value will be declining pretty precipitously, you know, going forward here, you know, two years from now, it's very easy to see him getting a lot less on the market than he can get right now. Um, he could be a player who makes sense, um, you know, kind of a la Serge Ibaka trade for the Raptors a few years ago, uh, where they pick him up for kind of a playoff push. 
Um, you know, that kind of a deal for a contender could make some sense here going forward um, as as teams are stocking up and, and trying to find a, a difference maker. If I was Golden State, I'm not openly shopping Draymond right now, but I'm starting to think about a future where he is not a warrior for life, uh, if that makes sense. And um, I don't think that's overreacting to two games. I do think it is taking into account the new information that we've seen throughout the preseason you know, throughout the, the first week of the season and just the reality that's been settling in since Kevin Durant left. Well, I think it's just, you know, shifting from a place where all that matters is this season and winning the title to now the Warriors have to consider more of a multi-year plan in terms of how they're going to progress here. And that's, you know, obviously a, a team that's been very forward thinking and using their cap and things like that. But even in planning, like you're saying, what does Draymond Green mean to this team this year? And what good does that do us? And same with D'Angelo Russell. I don't think there's any rush to move on any of these guys because realistically, even if you make some great moves, I don't know how far that really gets you. Maybe a little better into the West playoff race, but to what end? And so I think ultimately you're looking at next year and beyond as do we want to continue building around this core of Steph Draymond and a recovering Klay Thompson, maybe D'Angelo Russell or maybe another player who or players who we can flip him for. But the, the framing for the Warriors has definitely changed. I think it has to. And, you know, you consider Steph to be still the centerpiece guy. Clay, I think you really want to continue building around him. They obviously made a big investment to him and you're hoping he can get back healthy. Everything else is kind of on the table. And Draymond Green is a great player. I think you're absolutely right. He could help any number of teams who could use that kind of connector power forward, much less an all-league def- you know all league defender. Uh, the question is if the Warriors are ultimately ready to make that kind of shift. And again, I, I don't think there's any, any urgency to really do that anytime soon. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night. It changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. All right, we got another Warriors question from Philip. Uh, He's from Greece. Philip, thanks for writing in, man. I appreciate that. He writes, I've been following you guys for quite a while. I'm aware that preseason predictions were that the Warriors would be a low-tier playoff team, but after watching their first two games, I'm not that confident uh, they're going to make it. Uh, Their image on the floor at times was quite painful to watch. Do you believe they can actually make the playoffs? Let's twist this question a little bit, Rob. Is it in their long-term best interest as an organization to make the playoffs, 
or to make the lottery get a better pick? What do you think? I mean, if you had the choice, if you were in charge of like the big picture, uh, you know, steering of this franchise, because let's be honest, I mean, the only variable uh, that is going to get them into the playoffs is running up Steph's minutes and, and basically turning him loose, right? If you hold Steph back on a minutes restriction, um, they are a lottery team, period. So they can control this if they wanted to. Would you Would you do a, a stealth tank if you were Golden State, or would you play for the playoffs? I mean, I think there's no question that in terms of the long-term health of the team, getting a better pick is better. The question is, if you if you do tank or if the losing gets too frustrating, are you just like ruining Draymond Green's life? Like a guy like that becomes a much more of a wild card when you're when you're losing, when you have a very hey, young locker I, room. Can I pipe in? You know Please. what? Sorry, Draymond. You ran Kevin Durant out of town. Okay, that might be a little bit overstating <laughs> it. But you did not help with the Kevin Durant retention strategy. Let's put it that way. Yes. And you are the highest profile defensive player on the worst defense in the entire league. I don't care about your feelings anymore if I'm Golden State, okay? You got the titles. We're all good there. You've done everything we any anyone could have possibly expected uh, from his draft position, where he came from, changing the game. He is a Hall of Famer. There is no question about it. His feelings are not on my priority list if I'm the, the Warriors front office. Well, I think they should be in the sense that you just gave him a lot of money. And if we're looking forward to the next warrior season that matters. And I don't think this will ultimately be one, you know, maybe they're competing for the eighth seed or seventh seed. Maybe they're not, but the next really good warriors team, if you want him to be a part of it, or if you want him to be an important trade chip that gets you to that point, I think his feelings have to be taken into account. I think how he approaches the locker room and everyone around him feels has to be taken into account. And that's where the interpersonal dynamics of a tank are always really hard. It's hard on young guys. It's hard on you know stars and veterans who wish they could be playing for something. It's hard on coaches, certainly. I think that would be the tricky part for the Warriors, especially after, as we've talked about, five years of kind of unprecedented success. I get that. I mean, I'm not saying you run it into the ground tomorrow, but I think there's it's kind of like an ultimatum. It's like, look, show me that you can have a top 25 defense, you know, or what What are my choices? You know, I, I think it's, it's okay to have a frank conversation like that. And, you know, if you can't change the situation for the better, you, you leave the front office no, no options. And I think that that message can be communicated without necessarily like alienating players or, uh, you know, getting them in a situation where they feel like, oh, this is a waste of my time. I mean, to some degree, it's just a reality of, of NBA life. I think that Draymond's quote was something like everybody goes through this except for Tim Duncan, which, you know, that one, that one really hit my heart and my soul. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe a little humbling here for these guys, you know, ultimately is a good thing. Uh, it definitely got to them last year. I thought they crossed the line with how they treated Kevin Durant. I thought, you know, the average organization would have bent over backwards to make sure he was happy and done every possible thing. I think the Warriors thought they did, but they didn't actually do that. Um, and, you know, ultimately, uh, now they're they're paying for the consequences of, you know, what life looks like without him. Well, and to be fair to Draymond, too, I think he's probably more of a pragmatist than we're giving him credit for here in terms of like he knows what's up with this roster. He he knows who can defend and who can't, who can play and who can't. He knows that this is the youngest roster the Warriors have had in a long time. I'm sure on some level he would like intellectually understand that this is not going to be their year, but that doesn't make the frustration of having to play out 82 games any easier necessarily. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you could do a lot of those antics, you know, talky trash, yelling at referees, you know, crazy quotes in the media and all that 
when you're winning. I mean, that's a benefit of winning. It's superstar treatment. You know, that's kind of how it goes. If you're losing, you have to deal with the negative fallback that comes from that. And that's an adjustment that Draymond's going to have to make. You know, as one of his biggest defenders, uh, you know, if he's losing his mind here during a losing season and he's not contributing to a healthy culture, uh, I will not be pleased. And I will not, uh, you know, think that that is, uh, you know, evidence of the type of leadership that he showed at his best moments. And I'll be honest, I'm nervous about it too, Rob. I mean, I, this, it could get ugly. And, uh, you know, we we give these guys credit when things go well, and we have to call it out if it doesn't. All right, let's shift gears. We got a great question here from Abdul, who sounds quite excited. He writes, I know it's only two games into the season, but Trey Young is going to be an all-star. 38-7-9 against Detroit and 39-7-9 against the Magic. Most importantly, the Hawks have gotten wins in both those games. Okay, he might not average 39 points for the season, but he's got to be an all-star this year, right? Um, Rob, have you seen enough to pencil Trey Young into the all-star game? And is there anything you think maybe Steph Curry could learn from Trey Young? Uh, you know, given how well he's played so far this season. I mean, maybe Steph Curry could be the next Trey Young, you know? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. But, I mean, I think the, the math in the East for the guard spots is going to be really interesting this year. So, I mean, if we game it out, last year there were six guards taken as all-stars, which is the maximum you could possibly have. You have the two starters, the two reserves, the two wild cards, all guards. They were Kemba, Kyrie, Kyle Lowry, Victor Oladipo, Brad Beal, and Ben Simmons. So if you look at that group, okay, who could we who could we bump out? Maybe you're looking at Lowry. Maybe you're looking at Beal. If, you, if you know, he and Young both have really good seasons for losing teams, maybe you take Trey in that situation. But I think the wild cards here are some of the forwards where, you know, like Pascal, Pascal Siakam wasn't an all-star last year. Maybe he takes Chris Middleton's spot, or maybe Chris Middleton's still an all-star. You got Jimmy Butler coming. We haven't seen him play for the Heat yet, but I think he's going to be in this mix. Oladipo, I think, obviously won't be in the mix for the all-star because of his injury situation. Uh, you know, D'Angelo Russell replaced him last year. That's not a concern. So you maybe have one spot here for taking six guards. I think Trey gets in, but it, it starts to get a little bit tight when you account for the forwards and the wild cards. And then we have this weird wild card this year, which is, is, is Malcolm Brogdon going to be an all-star? Is Zach Levine going to be an all-star? Like give these two guys in the central division who are putting up crazy numbers so far, who I think could get in this conversation too. Look, Rob, I'm going to have to take issue with your use of the word tight when we're talking about the Eastern Conference, um, you know, all-star spots. Now, out in the Western Conference, the spots are tight like a corset. I mean, only all-NBA, Hall of Fame type guys can make the all-star team in the Western Conference. In the Eastern Conference, we're dealing more with spandex sweatpants, okay? There's going to be room for these guys when we're debating like Brogdon versus Levine. This is not exactly tight in my definition of tight. Now, we know this about Trey Young. Streaky, okay? There's going to be incredible moments. There's going to be moments where everything looks like it's going wrong. So let's ride the wave a little bit before we declare him as an all-star, but I think he's got a real shot this year. I wrote it over the summer. Um, he took a very purposeful approach to his summer. He added weight. He did all the, the kind of uh, offensive drill work that you would want from a guy who's going to have the ball in his hands constantly. We knew he would shoot better year two compared to year one. Uh, there was no question about it. And we saw his stats after the All-Star break, uh, you know, bounce up. Uh, I think Lloyd Pierce, their coach, deserves a lot of credit for sort of managing their entire culture around him. 
um, giving him the responsibility and the car keys from day one, but not overburdening him with expectations. Um, and then also their front office has done a pretty good job of finding pieces that are going to complement him. I'm not totally sold on them as a winning, you know, playoff type team quite yet. I uh, definitely want to see more, but it was a very promising and, you know, frankly, tantalizing start from Trey Young. I mean, when he goes off, uh, he's one of the best shows in the league. And, uh, you know, there's just no two ways around that. So uh, if I had to bet, I, I think he will make the all-star team. I think that that will happen this season. Um, I just don't think the guard crop is that great in the Eastern Conference. And his numbers are going to be exceedingly higher than even some of these veterans, maybe who are playing on uh, good teams. And I think that uh, there will be a desire to sort of reward him and kind of crown him uh, as one of the uh, future stars. And the fascinating thing is, I could see the same thing happening in the Western Conference with Luka Doncic, right? Like, couldn't you see foresee a scenario where, like, he wins the fan vote as a starter? Um, or, you know, he makes his first all-star team this year, even though it's much tougher to make it in the Western Conference because of the kind of start that he's had down in Dallas and just the, you know, the, the playmaking savvy uh, and, and the numbers that he's putting up. I mean, I think that it's going to be one of those situations where both sides of that trade are paying huge dividends, uh, you know, right off the bat. Oh, without question. I think Luca's going to get some real heat for All-Star. I think Trey Young is going to get in. And it, some of it's, as you mentioned, not only is he going to be wildly productive and very effective and really important for the Hawks, but he's he's more obviously dominant than even a guy like Kyle Lowry, bless him, is. You know, it's like it's the, the, the quality of the contributions is a little bit different. And Trey Young, you watch a Hawks game, it's very clear that he's the most important player to their offense and the most important player in terms of setting everyone else up. There's no doubt. You know, look at you look at Trey Young, he tested positive for cold-bloodedness. Oof. You look at Luka Doncic, he tested positive for championship DNA. You look at DeAndre Ayton, he tested positive for a diuretic and he's out for 25 <laughs> games. Now, <laughs> let's transition here to talk about the Phoenix Suns because they've been in the news in the first week of the season. There's no doubt about it. Not just because of DeAndre Ayton, uh, you know, with a real blemish uh, on his name as a number one pick, being suspended for 25 games. Apparently, you know, these diuretics can kind of conceal or mask the use of performance enhancing drugs. And so he's out until December. But in the meantime, Phoenix has played very respectably and got a big time win over the LA Clippers this weekend, which led to a flurry of emails from Suns fans who have been waiting years to ask questions about, uh, you know, the brightness of their organization's future. Jimmy writes, Ben, the Phoenix Suns are your favorite team to hate on. They almost beat the Nuggets and then defeated the title favorite Clippers. Is there a new horizon in Phoenix or am I just going mad after so many losing seasons? What do you think, Rob? Well, Ben, I have a confession to make. You know, the beginning of the season is a pretty frenetic time in terms of trying to get a hold of all these other teams to watch as many games as you can. I've watched probably 20-something of the teams so far. The Suns are not one of them. So I'm going to clear out here. I'm going to let you go in part because I just don't have it in me to stomp on Jimmy's hopes and dreams right now. Well, here's the thing, guys. Look. All of the hate on the Suns over the years was entirely legitimate, and this season kind of proves why. All right, you look at Phoenix's offseason moves. What did they do? Hire Monty Williams. Is he a top 10 coach in the NBA? No. Is he a replacement level coach in the NBA? Yes. Their second big move, 
going out and getting Ricky Rubio. Is he a top 10 point guard in the NBA? No. Is he a replacement level point guard at, at the starting position in the NBA? Yes. So all we're saying here is with two pretty simplistic moves, just bare minimum type moves, they've created a structure where the Suns can actually look functional for once. And yes, I understand that this is like mind blowing for Suns fans who are I can't believe their eyes that they're looking at like an actually, uh, you know, an NBA team or a team that appears to play like an NBA team for the first time in five or six years. But I mean, that's really all it took. And that's what we were screaming about for year after year during the Ryan McDonough era. Get a point guard. They're actually important to winning basketball. Hire a coach who's done anything anywhere and isn't just a random, you know, first time head coach who you're going to give a shot to. So um, I'm not going to you know, bend over backwards here, praising Phoenix's start. They brought the fight to the Clippers, though. There was no question about it. I liked that effort from them. And I don't want this to sound hot takey because I do have a level of respect for DeAndre Ayton, but I liked uh, their offense with Kaminsky and Baines in that game against the Clippers a lot better than I usually like their offense when Ayton is in there. Now, obviously, he's the more forceful impactful around the basket type of guy the more you know the flashier lob finisher but when they go to that five out with the with the big men who can kind of shoot it you know Baines and Kaminsky there's just a lot more room to operate this is not rewriting basketball principles to try to get to a five out look uh, but it does make life a lot easier for your main playmakers uh, it does you know create you know better quality looks and they just happened to be red hot in that game and they were going against a Clippers team that was in you know third gear uh, so to me Impressive victory, uh, certainly one of the better moments for that franchise in recent years. Uh, but I, I think the real lesson from the Suns' experience here in the first week is like, it's not that hard to be a respectable basketball team if you spend a little bit of money and you make just kind of like thoughtful hires um, and and reasonably well thought out signings. And it's not like they hit home runs this summer with what they did, but already James Jones is showing that he's light years ahead of Ryan McDonough in terms of the decision-making process. And uh, I think to me, that was the big takeaway from this week. Well, welcome to the season to your Phoenix Suns, now damned sufficiently with the faintest possible praise. (laughs) Okay, sorry about that. Uh, We got uh, some more questions. Here's one related to the Aiton situation from John. He says, thanks for an awesome pod. Rob has filled in tremendously, although I think the honeymoon period is over and Ben should start applying his trademark sass on Rob. I don't know, Rob. Are you ready for some trademark sass? uh, John continues, I have questioned multiple NBA players' transformations over the summer, pointing out how unlikely it is to add 30 pounds of bulk in three months. Now we have a confirmed violation in DeAndre Ayton, a diuretic that was likely covering up EPO or testosterone, which seems to be more or less the result of sloppiness on Aiton's part. I think it's time for the media to highlight the performance-enhancing drug situation in the NBA more thoroughly. I'm a national-level runner in Sweden, and I'm tested in competition unannounced more often than many NBA athletes. It's a joke. I don't think the NBA is oblivious to the fact that doping is very prevalent, but I think they stand to lose a lot of money. Is this issue simply not interesting to the NBA media? I feel like athletes aren't condemned after transgression in the NBA. Joakim Noah is talked about as a great locker room leader. He's a cheat. Hidu Turkoglu was celebrated as a great guy. 
also a cheat in running other athletes that are clean usually come out hard against people that dope. Why not in the NBA? Can you try to illuminate this issue further? And do you believe this is a big deal? This is a fascinating question from an overseas perspective. Uh, thanks for weighing in, John. Um, what do you think, Rob? Why do we not really care about PEDs so much in the NBA? I mean, I don't think we can speak for, you know, the media as some kind of monolith in terms of why it's not covered in any particular way. I'm sure every outlet has their own reasons for that. Personally, I just don't see that much value in taking like a big moralistic stance on it. I mean, certain PEDs and, you know, you have masking agents and other kind of paraphernalia associated with all that that are explicitly not allowed by the league. And if you get caught using them, you get hit with these hefty suspensions, like this 25-game one that, that Aiden got hit with. That's fine. That's no joke. That's a real penalty. But like making it a point to kind of assassinate their character because they used something that people outside the NBA can use legally anytime they want, I think it's I think it's easier to kind of like frame it this way in basketball because bulk isn't always good you know, like just adding muscle isn't always a good thing. So there's not like a pure advantage to using a bunch of performance enhancing drugs and therefore becoming a better basketball player. I think it's more complicated and the bodies are definitely more intricate in terms of the way their athleticism is uh, expressed. But I, I just don't see that much harm in it. I, I really don't see any point in kind of like making a soapbox to shame the players who get caught using this stuff. Yeah, John, I, I would recommend the work done by Henry Abbott uh, of True Hoop over the years. I mean, this has been a real passion project for him. I believe he's also a runner, too. Um, and I think he's made a, a real issue out of this. And I remember him kind of hectoring David Stern at various press conferences over the years, you know, about this issue. I think one reason why the media doesn't care all that much uh, is that Stern, uh, especially during his tenure, really convincingly argued or just repeated over and over that uh, performance-enhancing drugs wouldn't help NBA players. And so I think that that line of thinking has seeped in to sort of the general consciousness, and most people just assume that that's true. Um, I think in part because of the strength uh, issue that Rob mentioned, you know, it's not always about who's the biggest brute. Uh, that's not necessarily who wins. It's, it's a game of skill. It's a game of shooting. Um, but I do think that what we've learned over the years especially recently, is that uh, there's absolutely things that you can take to help you recover more quickly or help you uh, refine your body or help you, you know, improve your, uh, your durability or your uh, ability to withstand, you know, lots and lots of effort. Um, and I think that uh, in those situations, I agree with your premise, John. I'm not sure the NBA wants to know. I, I think that they view these things as... Um, on less rigid moral grounds than you do, or maybe than other sports do. Um, and ultimately, if a big time star were to test positive uh, for something like this, I mean, and Aiton is a well-known player, but he's not a top 25 star, right? But like if one of the big time stars tested positive and had to sit 25 games, I think it would take that type of scandal for people to really you know, reassess their thinking on this matter and really dive in to say, well, why did this guy feel like he needed to take it? Uh, you know, what was it? What was he trying to get from it? Um, you know, how was he taking it? Where did he get it from? Who was helping him? Uh, and I do think that part of it could be that there's just fatigue from other scandals. You know, I mean, I remember like baseball was just consumed consumed by the steroid scandal for years, and it definitely just turned me off in general. You know, I it was 
I became less interested in baseball because that was like the major talking point uh, year after year. And so I wonder um, if that's factoring in here too. It's like, is there the motivation to root out the truth on this issue, knowing that it could go down some dark alleys and now we're getting like, you know, federal investigators into who's meeting with whom and, you know, which briefcase has drugs in it, which one has, you know, money in it and, and all that stuff. I mean, I'm not sure professional sports media necessarily here in this country wants to go back down that path. Well, I think the comparison, and you mentioned Henry Abbott's work on the subject, which I would second is really great and and worth kind of digging back into. One of the comparisons I remember him raising was things like LASIK or contact lenses, the idea that this is a a man-made mechanism for improving a player's performance that we have just agreed is okay. Obviously, it's totally fine for someone to get LASIK, but it like it, it is physically reshaping part of your body to make you a more effective person and athlete. And so like that is perfectly fine, legal, and understandable. And yet, as you mentioned, Ben, we have an understanding that certain performance-enhancing drugs will help you recover more quickly. And we're talking a lot about load management, about injury recovery, and how teams are managing or mismanaging those things. And these drugs are out there on the table, some of which can be used safely and responsibly. And we're telling professional athletes whose livelihood is their body, you're not allowed to use these things because we don't want, you know, we as a league and as a collective media body don't want to have to monitor their usage to make sure you're using them right. Something about that has always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And it's like we're withholding this thing that could be really valuable to NBA players when ultimately it's their choice if they use them or not. Yeah, I hear you on that. Um, And I think one other point here, John, is that, you know, a lot of sports writers have very limited scientific knowledge in general. So as a runner, uh, you're already in a class intellectually and with, you know, familiarity with the major substances that are out there that is just not part of our, you know, body knowledge uh, at this point. And that may change. And I I think if one of the top 10 players uh, got the same result as Aiton and it changed the trajectory of his team's season, I think you would see a swarm of coverage on the issue and it, it wouldn't be delayed. I don't think it's necessarily something that uh, is taboo or like off limits forever. I just think it's kind of uh, on the back burner. Um, and I think part of it too is that, you know, the athletes have, who, who get tested positive, they have a, they stick to the story, right? Oh, I didn't know what I was taking. Oh, it was accidental ingestion and all this kind of thing. And, um, usually, uh, those cover stories are allowed to stand up here and as we saw, like in cycling, you know, if you do really dig into the excuses, um, th- that can go some really crazy places and the truth comes out and it looks totally different. So uh, maybe we're just waiting for our, our Lance Armstrong type of scandal here in the NBA. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I didn't expect to spend multiple podcasts diving into international politics. So maybe it really is just kind of a matter of time until we, we dig deeper into the performance hands- enhancing drug stuff too. All right, let's change gears here. Marcos writes, Ben and Rob, I know we only have uh, three game sample size, uh, including one game against possibly the worst team in the league, but Dwight Howard is balling. Uh, He's taken up the role of a role player seamlessly by getting rebounds and sacrificing his body when necessary and not going back to his post-up antics. He's even been a great energy guy off the bench. Look, I hated the idea of Dwight Howard coming back into the Lakers fold, just like every other Lakers fan. But at least from this early start, he's lived up to his preseason talking points for once. Please, open floor, get me back to sanity. Am I wrong to think that Dwight could give the Lakers some much-needed depth if he continues on this path? Uh, So, 
Is Marcos taking crazy pills, Rob? What do you think on the Dwight Howard uh, early experience? I mean, I think the collective adjustment of expectations here does a lot of good for Dwight. The idea that we're we're now discussing whether or not he can be a good backup center is just the kind of recalibration he needed. And, you know, I think it helps that the pressure points around the team don't really involve him explicitly. It's, you know, does LeBron have enough playmaking help? That's kind of a problem that's way outside Dwight's hands. It's, are we playing Anthony Davis at center? Which, at anything, if anything, I think would put a spotlight on him not to post up, not to be in the way, where he wants to show he can play with a guy like AD or play with another big and, and not, you know, crowd the Lakers' spacing. So I, th- I think the crux of the conversation really does kind of favor Dwight in that way in terms of it like just put your head down and do your job and you know rebound and block shots and be a good backup center I think he has that within him the question is his patience with it the question is you know whether he'll ultimately want something more than that but I mean all he all he has to do and all he's really ever had to do is kind of stay out of his own way and stay out of everyone else's way and he's done that successfully at earlier points in his career when he was a star and history will tell us that every stop since then has not been so successful so I hope this is the time, but I'm I'm not banking on this Dwight Howard being the Dwight we see all season long. Yeah, I think some caution is in the order. But first of all, let's give Dwight credit for his first week. He's played very well at times. Uh, the rebounding effort that Marcos mentioned has been right on. Uh, the commitment to his role, not doing too much, has been right on. And even his post-game interviews... Like he conducts them, in a, it's almost as if he's a stranger who accidentally stumbled into a funeral and he has to like give the eulogy. That's like <laughs> that's his attitude uh, during his post game interviews. Like he's he's trying to be like so respectful and soft spoken and non committal. You know, it's it's like uh, you know he was an uncle beloved by all. His family cherished his presence. You know, like that. That's basically what he's doing in his post game interviews. And that's part of it, too, because Dwight has, you know, throughout the course of his career, had a lot of different personalities in front of the microphones, and the Lakers don't need any of them. So he's off on the right foot, for sure, Marcos. Uh, consider me a major skeptic when they sign him. There's no question about it. I was on the record about that. My concerns are a couple. First of all, um, defensively, like in the Clippers game, he was getting really picked on by Lou Williams, okay? And so laterally, when when you get him into pick and rolls, uh, you know, fouls and, you know, just allowing guys to turn the corner, that's like still an issue, right? So um, I think that some of his better efforts came against worse competition. And if you're trying to be a championship team as the Lakers, uh, you know, you're, you're playing against, you know, largely playmakers who are going to be able to exploit him. Um, and so I think that center spot for me, it's, it's still kind of an open question for them defensively. The other concern, of course, is just staying healthy. Uh, and there's not you know, too much to that. I mean, he's missed some time here the last couple of years. And you know, like last year, you know, a player like Tyson Chandler, who's significantly older than Dwight Howard, you know, came in and gave the Lakers some real flashes. And then, okay, it's about sustaining that uh, night after night consistently. And I think for Dwight, you know, that's a question that can't be answered you know, until it plays out over the next six months. And the other thing, too, is that the more that AD plays the five, the more it's going to come down to who's playing well tonight between JaVale and Dwight Howard. And so far, I think we've seen that lean in Dwight's direction where JaVale has gotten pulled for certain stretches or played limited minutes in certain certain stints, and that's been good for Dwight. But what happens on the days when JaVale's looking better than Dwight, and does Dwight kind of get frustrated or sulk in those moments? Yeah, and let's be honest, like, 
Anthony Davis should want to play the five more. That life is really fun. You know, it's just a bunch of lob dunks from LeBron with shooters around the court, you know? So I'm kind of hoping that, I mean, I don't want him to be like running up the minutes all season long in that role, but I like that Vogel's gone to that look, uh, you know, with some regularity here early on. And I like that it's kind of paid off for Anthony Davis because sometimes it's about just like positive reinforcement, right? Like, of course, you're going to have that idea in your mind, which is what he expressed over the summer, which is, oh, the five's going to be so hard. I'm going to be, you know, getting banged all the time. And my natural position's a four. The flip side is if you're running high screen rolls with LeBron and you've got three shooters around the perimeter, uh, you're going to be putting together an NBA 2K highlight package every single night. So there is, uh, you know, some real benefits to that. And hopefully he starts to, you know, feel those benefits consistently uh, as the season uh, continues on. All right, Rob, we got another question here from Kevin. And this is in response to a wave of uh, rookie extensions that came down last week that we really didn't get a chance to touch on. But Kevin lays out the stats for player A and player B, and they're very similar, right around 13 points, four rebounds, uh, you know, marginal assist numbers and everything else. And he writes, One of these players is Jalen Brown, who just signed a four-year contract worth up to $115 million. The other player is Chetty Osmond, who just signed a four-year contract worth up to $31 million. Uh, I don't actually believe that Chetty Osmond is a better player than Jalen Brown, but look at how far apart their numbers are. Jalen will make more than three times as much as Chetty based on similar production. That's crazy, right? The Cavs took a super low-risk shot on Chetty, but doesn't this make the Jalen Brown contract look kind of bonkers? Uh, So I ask you, Rob, did Jalen Brown get overpaid by the Boston Celtics? Well, I mean, I think we should say first, that is a good deal for the Cavs with Chetty. I mean, getting a, a good wing role player locked in at that price is nice, but it should also go without saying that the Celtics are not paying Jalen Brown $115 million for the player he is now. It's a bet on the player he could be, which is all you can really do with these deals. And they're betting that an already really good wing defender with athleticism and skill and, you know, some good feel, but, you know, is a little inconsistent, can ultimately kind of find his way in the league. And that's the kind of bet you want to make if you're an NBA team right now is who are the wing guys who could make the jump? How close are they now? What's their odds of really jumping to that star level? And Jalen's one of those guys who's on the cusp. I think at minimum, he's a player who could rate out as a really good starter for a championship-level team. And you're hoping he can be a really good star for a championship-level team. And that's that's where the price yeah, difference yeah. Stop is. Stop right, right there. Are you hoping? Is this just, I mean, come on. Are you wishing? Like, is this really going to happen? Do you see star potential with Jalen Brown? I think there's like second or tertiary star potential with him. I don't think he's like a superstar guy, but if you told me he ultimately becomes the second best player on a contender, I wouldn't be shocked by that. Yeah, so I just want to challenge the premise of the question first. I mean, I think not all numbers are created equal, and you look at Chetty's numbers, what kind of context those are coming in. um, You know, it's a lot easier to put up numbers for Cleveland than it was for Boston, given just the, the level of talent Uh, in Boston, the way they had to spread things out, uh, Jalen's role and everything else. I think if you put Jalen in Cleveland, his numbers are going to look, you know, a lot better uh, than Chetty's numbers. So that's first of all. Second, I'm not sure that I see star potential in Jalen, but I think he got his contract based on, uh, you know, supply and demand, where if he hits the uh, market next summer and there aren't a lot of young wings, 
uh, it's very easy to foresee him receiving a four-year max offer because we've seen lesser players receive four-year max offers in restricted free agency uh, in years past, and there just isn't that many players to throw money at next summer. Uh, so I thought th- the contract actually landed in a pretty reasonably logical place for both sides. At the same time, it's not a contract that I necessarily would want to have on my books uh, by any stretch. I don't see star potential. Uh, I would love for him to prove me wrong. I just don't see enough creativity with the ball in his hands. I don't see enough uh, you know, for playmaking for himself or for his teammates. Um, I just think he's a little bit too narrow of an offensive player. And, you know, to get up where I'm feeling comfortable paying him, you know, almost 30 million a year, I, I need to see a, a big time, you know, top 10 at his position type wing. And I, I'm not sure I ever see that from Jalen Brown. Now with these other contracts, I'm going to run through them real quick, Rob. Torian Prince got two years, 29 million. DeMontis Sabonis got four years, 77 million. Buddy Heald got four years, 94 million. DeJounte Murray got four years, 64 million, and Pascal Siakam got like four years and 130 million max contract. From that group, uh, and you can include Jalen too, did you have a favorite uh, or a least favorite signing? I think my favorite one is Siakam, and it's probably the way I've kind of come the furthest in terms of being an outsider evaluating the NBA and the moves the teams are making, where there's definitely a point in time where I was wondering, why are these teams moving so quickly with these extensions? Why wouldn't they play it out? Make you know Whether it's making their guys go get a, a contract offer or a, a formal offer sheet from another team, or whether it's playing off of their low cap hold to you know, take advantage of their cap space. And then the more you talk to people in the league and specifically people in, in you know, the general manager's office and, and those capacities, I come to just believe more and more that with your best players, you really just don't mess around. And I, I kind of respect that the, the Raptors went that route with Siakam, knowing that he is their future in a lot of ways. Whatever their next stage is, it's going to be heavily contingent on him. So given the money, given the security, because even the people, you know, even the players we've seen who have been willing to kind of play out the string and then re-sign, like Kawhi Leonard, for example, I'm not saying that Kawhi's relationship soured with the Spurs because of that, but it, it's certainly a good way to build goodwill to to show your guys some commitment up front. You outflanked me, Rob. My favorite mm. of all the deals was Pascal Siakam too. Uh, we're on the same page on this one uh, for similar reasons. But also, it's just really nice to have a a very, very good to great young player. I kind of felt the same way when Milwaukee locked up Giannis, and they were actually able to get Giannis, I think, on a little bit uh, less than a max when they did his extension. And at that time, I think people were saying, oh, he can't shoot, you know, da-da-da-da. It's like, well, there's clearly an insane amount of talent here. And this is just a guy that you want to have in your group who you can build around, who's got a personality the fans love, who's going to play hard, who's going to bring it, put up numbers, and contribute to wins. And so from that standpoint, uh, Siakam was my favorite. I think my next favorite, though, was DeJounte Murray. Um, you know, that four-year, $64 million, I mean, we've seen the Spurs do contracts with some injured guys in the past, whether it's like Rudy Gay. I think they did one with Patty Mills a few years ago, too. Um, I think there's a really good chance Murray outperforms this contract, like, basically immediately. Uh, you know, I think that he has a chance to be, uh, you know, a plus starter at the point guard position. He's already been, you know, selected before his injury uh, as an all-league, you know, defensive level player. To me, it was easy to see him had he been healthy last year, expecting, you know, something closer to like a hundred million uh, over four years uh, if he had continued to develop like people expect. 
I think he could be a, you know, a very interesting offensive player too, with his length, quickness off the dribble, attack mentality. Um, and I also just trust the Spurs developmental system to take him from, you know, A to B to C as he, as he goes along. So to me, I can understand why he wanted this just from the financial security standpoint of missing all of last year and just wanting to be, you know, making sure that, you know, another injury didn't like throw his entire life completely sideways. But I just thought Spurs got great value here. I think it could be really nice. I mean, the injury ones are always tricky to parse. But again, who are we to stand between a guy in $64 million of security? Um, How did you feel about Buddy Heald doing the money hands to Vlade Divac? Um, (laughs) I was personally offended by that move. Oh, come on. Come on. Look, Captain Accountability was not pleased, okay? I understand people are going to be coming for Luke Walton here right off the bat, and there's no question, like, he doesn't seem like he's got the same buy-in that a guy like Jaeger had last year. But, buddy, heal. You've got to be better than that. I mean, come on. Like, during a public scrimmage that's for the fans, you're putting on a show, trying to get people excited for the season – you don't know it yet, but you're about to start off 0-3 and, and have two losses by like 29 or more points in the opening week. You've already you know, pounded your chest and demanded money in front of the cameras saying, hey, take care of me, take care of me, or I'm going to leave. You put down your franchise by saying they could never actually sign free agents. You've gone scorched earth. And then the last thing anyone wants or needs in that situation is a viral clip of Buddy Heald begging Vlade Divac for more money. I understand they're all laughing and joking about it. If I was Vlade or I was ownership, first of all, that probably would have just pushed me over the edge into saying no deal. And it also probably would have put Buddy Hield on the trade block. That would have drive me nuts. I mean, if anything, I think Buddy is being captain accountability here. He's saying, I'm a good young player. You're a team that needs to invest in good young players right now. Where's my check? I think like I think he's holding Vlade accountable when even the even the Kings and Vlade aren't holding themselves well, accountable. I'm outflanking you on this one. He's not good or <laughs> young. Okay, he lied about his age for multiple years. You know, God knows he's probably 35, and he is not contributing to wins in Sacramento. I understand that people really like to look at the volume and the efficiency on the three pointers, and it's an absolute skill. He's got it down, but there's a lot more to the game than that, and. That's where his focus should have been this summer, not going to war with his front office over an extension. I just thought he stepped out of line a little bit to me in terms of uh, how vocal he was, and I wish he had dialed it back. And now, once they take care of you, now you need to be a leader about it, right? If you are this good young player uh, that you're telling us that you are, that you're acting like you are, you know, you're, you've got this superstar swag. Go out there and show it on the court. Put up 40 points in your first game and lead a team to a victory. Don't get run off the court by the Phoenix Suns of all teams. Uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, I feel really bad for the Kings fans all around. They deserve better than this opening week, and they definitely deserve better than how Buddy's behaved over the last two weeks. You know, I'm going to take the radical position that one of the best shooters in the league is good. And so get your money, buddy. All right, all right. Last question here. It's from Pete. He writes, as a Raptors fan, I'm going to be in Los Angeles for November 10th and 11th. I have the opportunity to go to both the Lakers and the Clippers game. I obviously have to pay my respects to Kawhi Leonard, but should I go to the Lakers game and spend two of my three nights in the city at Staples Center? I'm torn and need guidance. For additional context, I'll be going to the Clippers game with my friends, but I would have to go to the Lakers game solo. I have never been to LA before. 
Side note, Ben, are there any recommended hikes? Okay, Pete, great question. You might be the first person in history to be sure they were going to a Clippers game and not sure if they were going to a Lakers <laughs> game when they visited Los Angeles. But Rob, we gave you know some excellent advice uh, to an emailer last week about his you know San Diego travels. So I, I'm going to double back to you. What do you think for Pete uh, in terms of his uh, schedule planning on his vacation? What should he do? Well, I think we need more information. You know, this feels like a classic sportsy thing of like, should the Wizards trade Bradley Beal? To which I, my first question would be, okay, for what? Like, if he's not going to the Lakers game, what is he doing? Like, he says he's going stag to the Lakers game if he goes. Does that mean he doesn't have friends or, or family or anyone else to hang out with if he doesn't go? And if he doesn't go, what kinds of stuff is he into? What would he even want to do in the first place? So I think the game is a solid option, but we don't really know what to weigh it against. We do know what to weigh it against. <laughs> Anything else in life, okay? You should obviously go to basketball games if you're listening to a basketball podcast. There's no way around it. Pete, here's why you're going to go to both games. They're totally different experiences. The Clippers experience, it's a little bit more fan-friendly. You've got this giant bird named Chuck the Condor who's jumping around, falling all over everybody as the mascot. Um, it is, uh, you know, they have this like kind of a blue-collar uh, vibe that they're going for these days with, you know, the hardworking team. So you're going to have a great time in that environment. But the Lakers games are built different. They got the the movie quality lighting. Uh, they got the glitzy Laker girls. They've got the crazy intros uh, where they you know bring these sheets down from the uh, scoreboard and, and beam these gigantic videos of LeBron James and Anthony Davis. There's celebrities. I've already seen David Beckham, Lil Pump. Granted, I didn't know who Lil Pump was before I saw him, but I did see him. And of course, the queen of all queens, Rihanna, showed up to the Lakers home opener. So as a Toronto guy, if you really want to maximize your shot at potentially running across Drake, I think you need to go to the Lakers game, even if you have to go solo. I think it's worth it. Um, just to get to get a sense for just the different environments between those two teams and the different personalities between those two teams. Uh, it's kind of a no-brainer. Also, don't you want to see how Pascal stacks up to Anthony Davis? I mean, isn't that you know kind of an interesting concept to me? Kind of a no-brainer, Pete. In terms of the hikes, okay, like we have wildfires going on right now. It's not the best time to be outside. I'm seeing a lot of those medical masks that some people wear on airplanes just from people walking around the neighborhood. So that's a little bit difficult. However, if it clears up, Here's what you should do. Go to Point Mugu State Park up in Malibu. It's a beautiful, I don't know, hour-long drive up the coast. Uh, you'll get beautiful Pacific Ocean views. There's a panorama trail. Um, if you uh, go into the main parking lot, climb up. You'll be able to see 180 out over the ocean. You'll be able to look forward to uh, this little rock that's uh, you know towards your, your northwest. Get some great photos unbeatable if that one doesn't work try go down to palos verdes it's the peninsula um you know unfortunately our president has a golf course down there i wouldn't necessarily recommend going there but beautiful cliffs um you can go see uh you know seals potentially every once in a while there's whale watching i don't know if it's the right type of year uh but that's another no-brainer uh from a hike perspective both of those are fairly easy to get to um you know in, in terms of ubers or, or whatever else from the city everyone's going to tell you to go to runyon canyon that's fine if you're really trying to do it hard for the gram and, and meet some models go ahead and try that but i would say go off the beaten path a little bit more have a good time 
That's great advice, Ben. And I think one thing to remember, just because you go to the Laker game solo doesn't mean you can't strike up a lifelong friendship with Lil Pump. Or Drake. I mean, that's the thing. You know, everything is on the table at the Lakers games. That's the main message here. And, uh, you know, it would be silly to try to do anything else besides go watch basketball. I don't know why you would do that. Uh, so again, you know, two for two on these questions about coming to California. I think we've, uh, we've taken care of business both times. Rob, we've reached the end of another episode. Thanks so much to all the Open Floor Globe emailers who sent in questions, comments, concerns, and takes. Openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com. You guys are doing a great job of keeping this show going. Guys, we're on Apple Podcasts at Open Floor. That's two words. Find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars for us. It's just that easy. It really helps us spread the word. Um, I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. You can follow everything from newsletters to articles to podcast appearances. Everything else is on that page. So check it out. Hey, Rob, until later this week, I will talk to you. Later, Ben.